0: Thanks, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, we are recording this on Tuesday, right after Labor Day weekend. Um, the absolute worst thing about Washington D.C. after Labor Day is the return of D.C. traffic and D.C. parking. Um, the best thing about the end of summer in D.C. is everything else. But I know a lot of people are concerned about what's going on with Hurricane Dorian. People, you know, lives are being lost, communities are being ravaged. And I understand those concerns. But because I am a humble servant of my listeners, when I hear that there are forced evacuations and climate refugees going on, my first thought is, how can I turn this to the advantage of the Remnant podcast? And so I have uh, in the studio in Washington, D.C., in person, first time in person in a studio in a very, very long time – ever – almost ever, sort of ever, I can't even remember now because I'm so high, I have uh, one Charles C.W. Cook of National Review. Welcome, Charles. Yeah, thank you for having me. So uh, you are rapidly approaching Scott Lincecum territory in terms of repeat performances on on the Remnant podcast.
1: It is, although this is, as you say, the first time I've been in the
0: same studio as you doing it. If you don't count a cabin on a cruise ship. That's right, that's right. Which was the first time we used the portable thing successfully, I think. I can't remember. It doesn't really matter. Future podcast historians will settle all of this stuff out. So you were forced out of Florida because you're, you're a Florida guy now. I'm a Florida man, and I
1: live on the beach. Uh-huh. So although it's extremely unlikely that northeast Florida is going to be hit badly, at least I hope, they evacuated all of the coastal zones anyway, which I suppose makes sense. And it's
0: also unlikely that someone would throw an alligator through a drive through window, and that happens in Florida all the time. Right. That's true. That's true. Although, in my defense, uh-huh. I had had quite a lot to drink that day, <laughs> and they were out of Popeye's chicken. Um, are you, quickly, Popeye's chicken or Chick-fil-A? Oh, I think they're very different.
1: Uh-huh. I'm not sure I can a- answer that. I probably go to Chick-fil-A more. Okay. But then of
0: course you have Popeye's on a Sunday. Yeah. I think Popeye's fried chicken is better than what you get a Chick-fil-A. But the sandwich is a Chick-fil-A, But the sandwich a Chick-fil-A is better. Yeah. Um this is one of the great things about late stage capitalism is the the blinding, soul killing choices that you get. But you know what I
1: really like is bojangles. Really? I haven't been to a bojangles
0: sober ever. <laughs> um at all, not in a lot in decades. So oh, is that why you have it in front of you now? Uh that's not bojangles. That's just the wrapping i put around these things
1: <laughs> i can burnish my florida man credentials by telling you that the last time i had bojangles was at the daytona 500 in february
0: nice mm-hmm. nice so uh you're in dc because your wife's family is from the area or has you've been living in the area is living in the area and uh i had my share of uh charlie cookery yesterday i uh um, and I'm not talking about some sort of roundheaded defense of, uh, parliamentary supremacy. Um, and when I say roundhead, I'm not talking about phrenology. Uh, I went to Six Flags in Maryland with my daughter for an end of summer thing. It was particularly poignant because my summer is going to be leaving, my, my summer, my daughter's going to be leaving, uh, home for basically the entire school year and we want to get one last amusement park thing in. Um, you've been to that Six Flags? I haven't. Okay. Cause there's the wild one. Which, uh, for, oh, I'm sorry, for listeners, at National Review, Charlie is the, um, sort of in-house British historian, but there are other people who know that stuff. His real areas of expertise are firearms and roller coasters and increasingly NASCAR. Um, am I leaving anything out? Baseball. Baseball. Yeah, but you're, I mean, like, r- rich and, um, that's like, Rich and Michael Brendan Doherty are gonna compete with you on this. Oh, and beat me. And Dan McLaughlin is. And, uh, the, yeah. Right. Baseball not too. Yeah. Oh, well, baseball crank, I think. Beatles,
1: is. I think I probably am the, the national review expert on.
0: Okay, so before we get to, um, I, this is one of the things I wanna talk to you about. Before we get to amusement parks and roller coasters, I, um, was listening with my daughter on satellite radio to the Beatles channel on Sirius, and they had the, I guess it was a Labor Day weekend thing, the hundred best Beatles songs ranked by listeners in North America. And on the one hand, like, I was, tr- I've been trying to explain how big the Beatles are, cause we saw yesterday, and it helped her understand, like, just what a big thing the Beatles are. And it's like, number 75 was like, oh, blah, dee, blah, da, or something like that. And I was like, this is a pretty big song, and there are 74 others that people think are like a bigger, or better song. And. Out of more than 200. Yeah. And uh, although there was one that was at 13, which I thought was bizarre, which was Hey Bulldog, um, which I thought was just poorly placed.
1: John Lennon was embarrassed by that song. It was the first song he had written that Yoko Ono watched him record. And it's poppy and throwaway. And he said,
0: Oh, no, she'll think I'm a lightweight. Interesting. Um, I thought there was going to be some sort of performance anxiety issue going on. Um, uh, what would be your top. If you had to come up, I'm not going to say hundred because that'll take up the whole podcast. But you know, your top four or five. You know, you have a well. Which, which day of the week are we talking? I, I find it difficult
1: because I go through, I go through these phases. Wow, I would say she's leaving home.
0: Uh-huh. It won't be long. Are you deliberately picking sort of? non-obvious choices? No, no. Uh,
1: She Loves You if you want an obvious choice. That's the classic early single. I think if Aliens came down and said, tell me about the Beatles before 1966, Uh before the drugs, before the experimentation, before the studio becomes an instrument, Uh find a song, explain Beatlemania, explain the energy and the songwriting and the harmonies and the melody, what is it? I think the answer would be She Loves You.
0: Okay, okay.
1: And I'll add Nowhere Man and penny lane
0: but it's it's impossible i understand i understand you know it's like it's all these i mean it's one of the most terrible thing about the internet is that it forces everybody to come up with the rankings of things as if these are like written in granite um and uh did you see the movie yesterday i haven't yet so that i actually emailed you immediately after i saw it just wondering what you what you thought about it and
1: i kept the email so that i could reply when i'd seen it i should have That's replied it. and said i haven't seen it yet yeah, but. but yeah such in as- three years, you'll get an email. <laughs>
0: um, so, um, anyway, at Kingdom at, at Six Flags in um, in Bowie, Maryland, uh, which is not necessarily in every regard putting the best face on America in some senses, but or on amusement parks, it's not a great amusement park. Um, it's amazing how much better the food at say the Iowa County Fair is than this sort of. You know, chicken tenders brought to you by the Ramjack Corporation. Six Flags is notoriously bad for food. Yeah. But I know you like, as I do, wooden roller coasters. And they've got one called the Wild One, which, right. which is over 100 years old now. Um, and I, I thought the Cyclone was the oldest, but the Cyclone was 1927, right?
1: Yeah. So the Wild One is, is a classic. And that's why I know about that park. And they uh-huh. have two other rides there that I really want to go on. For very different reasons. One of them is a hypercoaster built by Interman called Superman. Mm-hmm. and I was on it yesterday. Well, that, that's regarded as a classic within its genre. Uh-huh. And then I know you took a video of this. Firebird mm-hmm. is not a classic within the genre, but it is the first roller coaster built by a company called Bulliger and Mabiar of Switzerland. They revolutionized the roller coaster industry. It's built in 1990, but not there and not in that form. It was built in Gurney, Illinois at Six Flags, Great America. It was called Iron Wolf, and you stood up on it. The trains Uh had bicycle seats. Now they're the new flawless trains where your feet hang out. So it's it's a piece of roller coaster history. It's a little bit like Going back to the Beatles, seeking out the first Beatles recording, you don't listen to it and say, "My goodness, this is better than *Sgt. Pepper*." Right. But there's just something important about knowing, yeah, the first moment, and and that was one of them.
0: So, what is the oldest wood roller coaster in America? I mean, I, I guess it's the oldest roller coaster, right? Because there's no pre-wood ones.
1: Yeah. So, the oldest roller coaster in America will be the oldest wooden roller coaster in America. This, I think, is a matter of debate. I, I think I'm right in saying that it's in Pennsylvania at. Kennywood.
0: Hmm. As in Kenny Rogers?
1: No, not like Dollywood with Dolly Parton. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm temporarily forgetting the name. The, the, the wooden roller coaster revolution that you saw in the 1920s was mostly destroyed by the Depression. Right. And at the beginning of the Depression, there were around 1,500 to 2,000 wooden roller coasters in America. And by the end of the Depression, there were about 30. Mm hmm and they were torn down for firewood or they closed for lack of use. And so what you're looking at in most parks are wooden roller coasters that were built as tributes to the originals mm-hmm. or within the next go around. So the 1970s is when you begin to get a renaissance.
0: Yeah, because the the Cyclone was almost scrapped what the six the Cyclone for listeners who don't know is this awesome Coney Island roller coaster that I grew up on that for years i don't know if it still is but dramamine used to come out with a list of the 10 best roller coasters and was always on there i never knew if it was partly a nostalgia kick that they put it on there well yeah and there could be some payola involved
1: (laughs) (laughs) the the giant dipper at the santa cruz beach boardwalk has the same appeal that's a that's a pre-depression roller coaster but interestingly enough the the coney island cyclone was one of two famous wooden roller coasters and it was the only one that survived the thunderbolt, thunderbolt. went yeah that's yeah, gone yeah when did they destroy that you know? i think it stood for a long time i it was only pulled down gosh i'll get this wrong but i think it was pulled down in the 70s or 80s it stood there standing but not operating with the weeds growing through it yeah see that because
0: that, that every year on my brother's birthday Coney Island had just opened because my brother was born on May 8th and we would go to Coney Island. And the name Thunderbolt really strikes a chord with me, but I don't remember ever riding it. I feel like maybe I saw it just standing there kind of thing. When are they going to open that?
1: Yeah. But what happened was in the 50s, once there were almost no wooden roller coasters left, when the economy started booming, the introduction of steel roller coasters was seen as the mark of the future. Mm -hmm. And so in disneyland california in anaheim you get the matterhorn bobsleds built by aerodynamics out in california at that point and people said well why would we have a wooden roller coaster when we have this new technology and so that took over for a while it was steel, still still and then the mid-1970s i think i can't remember which came first i think it was either the the racer in king's island in mason ohio or what was until last year called rebel yell in king's dominion in Virginia, <laughs> but i think it's now called racer 75 um, Not
0: Pickett's Charge? Or- no, they, they, <laughs> they
1: responded pretty quickly to the, the complaints on that one. But anyway, they came out and people said, actually, this is enormous fun. And, the, and the, it led to a resurgence, which really took off in the 1990s with uh, companies such as Custom Coasters International, which just really built the most incredible rides. And then since then, it's been a, a hallmark of every park. Because um, they are different. I mean, they they feel
0: very different. Yeah. So this they this is actually the different. This is the only reason I really wanted to bring this up, other than to show off your weird, you know, mutant roller coaster knowledge powers. <laughs> um, is uh, my daughter are really trying to figure this out about why the wooden roller coasters feel more intense. There's an and is it because they're just using centrifugal force and gravity? Um. Do the steel are the steel ones powered in any no. way? No. So, but it just feels buffered in a way that the the wood ones don't. A roller coaster to
1: be a roller coaster cannot be powered. Okay. Now there is some debate over whether that applies to roller coasters that are given their initial energy by a launch uh-huh. rather than by a lift hill. Most enthusiasts will say if there's a launch and then after that there's no power, that's fine. The Main difference between a well built steel roller coaster and a well built wooden roller coaster is that there's just far more travel on the wooden roller coaster between the wheel assemblies and the track. Mm-hmm. You still have upstop wheels, that's pretty important. Upstop wheels are the wheels underneath the track that prevent the car from flying off when right, you right, get right. positive G. I'm in favor of that feature. Yeah, no, me too. But steel roller coaster assemblies, the springs are a lot stronger, they're much. More tightly engineered, in part because they tend to go upside down, and if they mm-hmm. don't, they're built much taller. Right. And so, with a wooden roller coaster, because there's more travel both laterally and vertically, then you're going to get far more of uh, vibration bouncing around. Right, right. Um, also, uh, w- wood is not bendable in the way that steel is. And mm. again, the, the real revolution in modern roller coaster design came in the 1990s with the introduction of computer-aided design. And at that point, you could do anything with a piece of steel track. And the computer would tell you exactly how to design and manufacture a given piece. And then uh, a manufacturer would do it. Well, you can't do that with wood yeah, because you can't bend it. So with wood, you've you've got, if you think about it this is crude and this isn't quite right because of course engineering is much more advanced than this but with wooden roller coasters you're more likely talking about Lego where you have a set of pieces you yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. put it into a configuration but much less so than you would with a coat hanger. Mhm. Okay.
0: All right, so now we got rid of the important stuff. So um where to begin? Let's go big picture before we do the grubby rank punditry stuff. Um, I recently had Neil Ferguson on the podcast, right? And we're going to talk about his accent versus your accent later in the program. Um, we have some exciting annou- announcements on that front, but is that why he's standing at the door with a sword? <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be so disconcerting except he has no pants on. <laughs> um, and, um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, he made the argument... I mean, I know you're not a Whig, right? You don't call your... You're not technically... You don't believe in Whiggish history. Oh, I don't believe in Whig history. Right, right. But you're... But you're... So he... I'm Whig-ish. whig You know, I'm i I'm Whig-ish too. Um, and he fairly resolutely takes the position that um, all of history is just essentially one damn thing after another. Contingency technology and sewers are more important than... Um, ideas, uh, he didn't quote, I think it's Carl Hess who says that the, that tools have contributed more to the advance of civilization than Jesus ever did. You know, I, that's not my position. That's just, there's a, there's a bit of John Lennon there. You're going to get, mad. <laughs> um, there's a, there's a rank material. So he basically says he's a Marxist, but on the side of the bourgeoisie. And we didn't get a chance to get too deep in the weeds because I actually agree with some of that. I think there is a lot of contingency to history. I mean, I read in my book that, Liberal democratic capitalism is in some part an accident that we stumbled into and that we should therefore be all the more grateful to protect it because you could stumble out and then we're in trouble. <laughs> um, where do you come down on this trade off between ideas and, and material for cold material forces?
1: Uh, I'd ask the question of which comes first. So I agree that a lot of history is driven by tools. But the question is, who has those tools? And who doesn't? And why? Why do we have so many tools in America, but they don't have the same number of tools in a country that doesn't have our institutions? And if you're an imperialist, which I'm not, you could make the same case and say, well, why is it that India didn't have sewers and trains until the British arrived? Why did the British have the capacity to install those. Now, I suppose somebody on the left would say, because they exploited everyone. I don't think that's an adequate explanation at the root point. In terms of the overarching question, it's also true, is it not, that deeply illiberal and sometimes downright evil societies also had a lot of tools. If you look at Germany, Germany in the 19th century was not entirely, but was largely benign. Mm Mm-hmm. It was a powerhouse of invention. It invented and created much of what we now consider to be the modern world. That period of peace between, or mostly peace, between Waterloo and the outbreak of the First World War was good for Germany, and it was good for Europe, and it was good for the world. They didn't show any great sign of slowing down or lacking in ingenuity or engineering prowess in the lead up to the First World War, or indeed in the lead up to the Second World War. <laughs> but that's not good enough. Yeah, You still need that layer on top. And indeed, if it comes down to a question of having that layer on top, or advancing more quickly, I'm having the layer on top, because I wouldn't take a trade off. And I'm not for a second suggesting that Ferguson is arguing this, because I know he's not. Mm. But I wouldn't take a trade off, for example... They said, well, yes, we'll put some people in camps and we'll remove a lot of political rights, but we'll advance quicker and have more things and right. the sewage system will be better. That's just not a trade-off I'm willing to make. I'd rather have a poorer sewage system and individual rights. Yeah, Of yeah. <laughs> course, I don't believe I have to make that trade-off because I think that the best overall outcomes are provoked by liberal democracy and classically liberal attitudes towards rights and markets. But if capitalism were not the greatest engine of human progress, I would still be in favor
0: of it. Right. Right. I mean, my old friend Ron Bailey used to say that if socialism worked, he'd be in favor of it. I, I'm inclined to think that if socialism worked, I'd still be kind of against it. And that's, But that's a reasonable disagreement, it seems to me. And certainly at a local level, you could be, if people had the, at the right of exit from a socialist small community, a... a Dreher-esque or Deneen-esque community, then they said, you know, this just doesn't work for me. I want to leave the kibbutz. Then, by all means, the people who stay in the kibbutz should have their socialism, right? But on a macro level, uh, even if socialism were net benefit for the most people, I'd still be against it. Well, we also have to pause out what worked means. Sure. No, absolutely. There's a lot of loaded in there.
1: And a good example of this, I think, is the present debate over Brexit, back when Brexit was merely an idea and the vote hadn't yet happened, I was struck by how many people said, well, if you look at the charts three 3.2% greater growth in this sector, if we don't, okay, fine, if that's the way you look at the world, but I don't. Right. My attitude on Brexit has always been, ironically enough, informed by a socialist, Tony Benn, Mm-hmm. With uh, whom (laughs) I have almost nothing in common politically, but who said that it was not the most important question whether membership within the European Economic Community and subsequently the European Union would lead to a better deal on working hours or maternity leave or union rights. Uh, The most important question was whether he, as an elected representative for the constituency of Beaconsfield, was allowed to give away powers that had only been loaned to him. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, at stake here is the legacy of the Chartists, is the legacy of the Glorious Revolution, is the legacy of the suffragettes. Not whether there's a 2% increase right. in banana exports. Well, that, that would be impressive from England. <laughs> <laughs> Imports, well, probably. And all advances from zero are infinite. So I mean, you could that's right. <laughs> two bananas exported. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking at this now. And I have broadly the same approach. Uh One has to be prudent. There is no room for recklessness with people's lives. And I accept from a small C conservative point of view that you shouldn't throw out the status quo lightly. But the British people did vote to leave. Yeah. And the European Union has a habit of trying to thwart that will. And if you believe, as I do, that that decision to leave was justified because the European Union is undermining what is the best thing about Britain, which Mm. is its parliamentary institutions and the fact that power is only temporarily loaned and only to the people within its borders, then you have to look at the, well, we might lose this amount of GDP or that amount of GDP and say,
0: okay, so what? Right. Um, So. Since you brought it up. I mean, I, I, I'm fine with going back to liberal democratic capitalism as a process of discovery through uh, trial and error, but we're going to end up agreeing on all of that. So, um, what do you, what the hell do you think is going to happen? Right, this, we're going to have a. It sounds like we're going to have an election soonish. We're going to have a decision soonish. Uh, cats and dogs living together. What's going on? I don't know. It's
1: been a lot harder to effect this change than I thought it would be. The primary problem here. And this has implications, I think, worldwide, is that the mechanisms by which Brexit was to be decided are incompatible with the mechanisms by which Brexit was to be affected. And by that I mean, unlike in, say, Oregon or California... There is no overarching constitutional order that creates space for referenda or ballot initiatives. Britain doesn't have any constitution beyond Parliament in practical terms when push comes to shove. There's a a lot that's informal and, of course, the people are the constitution and it works relatively well. But the only means by which the Brexit referendum could come about was if Parliament created an instrument and promised... (laughs) Pinky spore. <laughs> yeah, to follow through. Parliament knew that the British people were out of step with its own members, and so Parliament permitted this question to be put to them. But that didn't change the underlying problem, which was that the members of Parliament who asked the question don't want to do it. Yeah, and the Conservative Party is split on this question. The Conservative Party, of course was in government at the time of the questions being put and is in power now. So you have a real problem. And I have been surprised at how steadfastly the opponents of Brexit have held on to their opposition, despite how clear the referendum was. I don't know what's going to happen next. We've got to the point at which Boris Johnson has prorogued
0: Parliament which is constitutional. It's chicanery. Yeah, yeah. So it's so, so, prorogue. This is a term that does not show up often, and I had to read it three times to realize. What is proroguing? When you have a an election or an
1: internal change of party leader and therefore prime minister, it's customary for parliament to be suspended, for the queen to make a speech in which she outlines the government's Agenda, whatever that is, right. she's not sitting making revisions. And then for parliament to convene and take up the large.
0: But so the, the word itself, prorogue, is that like, I mean, what what is the root there? What is I don't the know. verb? That's
1: a, that's a good question. I just know that what it means is that parliament is taken out of session and suspended for a short period during which everyone gets their ducks in order, the queen outlines the agenda, and then they uh-huh. come back and vote on it. It's legal. Uh-huh by definition, it's legal. Whether it's the best way forward, I don't know. But I think what you can see here is this is not a done deal. Three years later, you've yeah. got Johnson effectively hitting a reset button and saying, all right, all right, all right, we've been in session for 340 days, which is a very long time, I think the second longest in British history. Let's act as if we just had an election. And now the backlash has been such that he's saying, all right, maybe we'll have an election. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But to ask the same question as was asked of the British people three years ago, (laughs) which they answered in the affirmative, and it looks
0: like it looks like Johnson would win this election, right?
1: Oh, I think he would win the election for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because Jeremy Corbyn, I hope, is unelectable and probably has hit his ceiling. I'm nervous (laughs) making predictions like that, but that's my read on it. And also because there is. Not only a sizable pro-Brexit contingent within Britain, clearly, there is also a smaller but nevertheless important contingent that is concerned primarily with fair play Mm -hmm. and I think will not be impressed if the vote is overturned. Mm -hmm. The fear for the Conservatives under Theresa May was that this secondary party, the Brexit party, would siphon off so many votes from the Tories, that their constituency would be split and someone else would come up through the middle. But Boris Johnson, if he's taking these steps in order to affect Brexit,
0: is likely to forestall that. And so do you, I should have looked it up, but I, you know, again, um, I had to tell Kissinger he couldn't come in today because I got Charlie (laughs) Cook. Um, He's outside with a sword as well. (laughs) um, Have you seen Kissinger in person in the last few years? I haven't. Yeah. I saw him on a plane. I mean, all praise and honor, you know, or disdain. I can't never remember which ideological faction hates him or loves him these days. But um, he is downright Tolkien-esque now. I mean, he he looks like he should be working on an anvil in the bowels of some mountain. It's really amazing. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, where was I? Um, the current state of polling on Brexit is that it's underwater or No. In Britain?
1: To be honest with you, I'm not sure. The current state of polling shows Boris Johnson leading by
0: quite a few points. So if he ran on... But like, is he popular enough that if, say, Brexit is at 48, does he yeah. claim a mandate if he wins for Brexit?
1: Yeah, because th- a lot of the polling I've seen, there's a distinction between whether Brexit is a good idea per se and whether Brexit should be pursued given that it was approved.
0: Right, right. And there's also Brexit... And no-deal Brexit, right? There's deal Brexit and no-deal Brexit. I think no-deal Brexit is unpopular. Right. But part of Johnson's thing is that he learned from – this is my understanding. He learned from May that you have to tell the public you're willing to do no-deal Brexit and seem like you believe – And no-deal breakfast. Yes. (laughs) Um, Or the EU is just going to just roll you again, right? The
1: European Union is extraordinarily tenacious and seems to believe that the way to behave is to say no and no and no until you get the answer that you want. Yeah. Which is another reason that I think, on balance, that a no-deal Brexit is better than no Brexit. Because I think that would be a horrendous precedent to set. Yeah. You know, to To see a country vote to leave an institution and then have that institution... Trigger the mechanism it created for a country to leave, and then to resist it. Yeah. And one of the one of the examples I saw a really poor analogy was with secession in the United States. Well, why on earth should the overarching government be happy with this? But the difference there is that there is no mechanism within the U.S. Constitution for a state to secede. Mm-hmm. We can argue whether it's implied. We can argue whether there's a hypocrisy because America effectively seceded from British rule all of that but article 50 exists it is there explicitly to permit a state to withdraw right and the european union signed on to its activation and now is playing hardball in a way that i think is unseemly and borderline
0: dangerous all right so just one last thing on this this strange island you come from um this whole unwritten constitution thing, right? I mean, I understand it in theory. I get it. You know, it's a body of laws and 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 approaches that are developed over time. There's a the, there's a part of me, the Burkean, Hayekian part of me, really digs it, right? But what the hell um, is it? Is there any attempt to say? Is there anything written down that says? yeah, there are other parts of the Constitution because it's a tree with many branches and many leaves and all that, but here's the trunk of it. And is that written down? Is that something that can be referred to? What, what, When you have debates between pinhead law professors and they're debating what the meaning of the British Constitution says, what's the text they're referring well, to? Well, the, the problem is,
1: structurally, that the the highest authority within Britain is Parliament. Mm -hmm. You could argue that in some respects the highest authority is the monarch, but within the post-Glorious Revolution environment, the monarch is subservient to Parliament in practice.
0: And so if Parliament changes... The Just provisions... a quick aside, are, are there, if you said that in a diverse dinner table conversation, would there be people who would argue with you about it? No, I don't think so. No, okay. Not as a matter of practical okay. politics. The
1: provisions that you're referring to are therefore meaningless because parliament can change them. Right. So Britain has a Bill of Rights. preceded the American Bill of Rights. But it's mostly a dead letter because Parliament merely either explicitly repealed some of its provisions or decided that it would change them in ways that superseded them because the changes were subsequent. So Parliament is in charge of the British Constitution in practice because there's nothing above it. In America although Congress is by far and away the strongest branch, at least on paper, and should be, Congress is still bound by rules that sit above it within the U.S. Constitution and by which Congress was created. Right. So if Congress tomorrow said, we are going to imprison Jonah Goldberg for political speech that he made before the law that we're going to use to imprison him was written. Yeah. You would say, hold on, hold on. Congress can't do that because the First Amendment starts, Congress shall make no law. Right. And the prohibition on bills of attainder applies to Congress. And that sits above Congress's powers. Right. Now, in Britain, you might have a law that says you can't imprison people for political speech and you can't... um, Well, it would also be an ex post facto violation. You can't... uh, violate, um, you can't uh, do bills of attainder and you can't do ex post facto laws, right? But parliament could then change that. Right, right. And then the laws changed. And then there's no protection whatsoever except appeal to tradition. So, um, and and the, the core difference here philosophically, of course, is that the American constitution, at least how originalists and conservatives see it, is an actual enforceable contract. Right. It, it It's taking Locke's idea out of the abstract realm and into the practical. I can sue the government for violating the contract that we – and, of course, I didn't because I wasn't here and I wasn't born – but agreed to. Mm-hmm. You can't do that in Britain because Parliament would just say, well, we just changed the law. Right, right.
0: Yeah, I mean it's – the funny thing is all the social contract theory is all BS. There was never a social contract basically until the U.S. Constitution. I mean I'm sure there was some, a couple other – Magna Carta. Well, because it
1: was explicitly ratified and of course that's yeah. the originalist argument and that's why non-originalist arguments in my view are bunk. Now, if you look at how – uh, why,
0: why are originalist arguments bunk? No, non-originalist oh, non-original. arguments okay, yeah, are yeah, bunk.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad I clarified that. <laughs> no, I, I think that, that the advocates of living constitutionalism essentially want us to adopt the British approach. Right. The revision committee looks different <laughs> because it's a combination of Congress and judges. You need the judges to permit the congressional change, but it does take out of the American order – the idea of a Lockean enforceable contract that means something concrete and that can only be changed with the acquiescence of the various parties. Right. And
0: very difficultly. Yeah. I think
1: it's hugely important. Right. Absolutely. It would be more like the way the US Constitution is written is, is more like a, the way a, a well-constructed legal partnership is written and you put in, for example, that you need two-thirds of the partners to consent to the change of the operating agreement. Right. Right. Now, that's a good thing, because otherwise you end up with some argument with the board and Yeah, no, I mean it, it should day... be
0: difficult and should take time because you want maximum buy-in to change to a fundamental charter.
1: Yeah, and, and also and then and we get into difficult territory here because this is this is impossible to prove and it would take us back to the topic we're broadly avoiding because we agree on it. But the other difference here is that the US Constitution is not random. Mm. It's not wholly contingent upon a place or a people or a a period in history. It is designed to reflect timeless truths. Now, we, of course, have to argue over what they are. You can't just assert them without Mm. argument. But from my perspective, changing the Constitution should be hard because the Constitution is designed not to address life in the United States in 1787, but designed to address the permanent state of human ambition, right. human capacity for evil, the importance to a functioning republic of free speech, freedom of conscience. You know, these are things that you that we didn't enshrine the tax rates in the Constitution. Right, right. And that, at that point, if you had to get a constitutional amendment to change the income tax rate, which of course, there was no income tax, but you, 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 would, you would have a bigger problem.
0: Yeah, well, this is why I'm, I'm always saying how as a matter of philosophy or metaphysics or however you want to put it, Fukuyama was right, right? That we had reached the end of history in terms of how to best organize a society in broad philosophical terms, that the individual is sovereign, the government should be limited, that it works for us, we don't work for it, all of those kinds of things. You can still argue about how big a welfare state you want and all that kind of stuff, but those broad philosophical precepts of liberalism really can't be improved upon and that's right. that thing that calvin coolidge does in his 150th anniversary of the declaration speech so that brings us so now we're going to we're going to descend we're going to bring the plane down a little bit but not so rapidly that the oxygen masks fall anyway, um, am
1: i helping you when that happens or are you helping me
0: uh all i know is jack's on his own <laughs> <laughs> and uh uh the gun debate is a constant thing and and we don't need to get into mass shootings because it's just so depressing and it's depressing that it's depressing because like, it just happens and you feel like you're just – it's Groundhog Day and it's really grim. Um, but there is this argument that keeps percolating up on Twitter and other places that um, it seems to me that the, the anti-Second Amendment crowd is gelling around the idea that the Second Amendment was always intended as a collective right, not an individual right. And you have – some disagreement with this. So why don't you just walk the listener through it?
1: I think this is probably the argument made in American public life that infuriates me the most, because it is not a political argument. It's an argument about reality. As your listeners will know, and anyone who knows me outside of this podcast will know, I am a
0: staunch advocate of the right to keep and bear arms if you saw him right now you would see this because he's got like bandoleros crossing both shoulders and he's just he's dripping with guns it's really kind of i
1: didn't used to be i used to have precisely the opposite view but that's where i come from now i make no secret of it whatsoever and as a practical matter i don't think that gun control no i should say i don't think further gun control will work Mm -hmm. or is a good idea there's a lot of gun control measures i support we have a lot of them on the books That, though, is a separate question than what the Second Amendment meant to the public and to the men who wrote it when it was written. And this ongoing attempt to pretend that James Madison and the Congress placed into a charter of individual rights (laughs) some heretofore unknown idea of collective rights Mm -hmm. is just absolutely preposterous. Mm -hmm. Now, Chris Murphy, a senator from Connecticut, made this argument last night in response to Ted Cruz. And I was just struck by how little Murphy knows about anything to do with this debate. He said that at the time of the founding, the term bear arms was... Inextricably linked to the idea of the militia. Mm. That's not true. The Second Amendment is written in 1789. The whole amendment process was started not by Madison himself, of course, but by the Anti Federalists who thought the structure of the Constitution wouldn't be sufficient to protect individual liberty and so they needed individual rights written down. 13 years before the Constitution was written, 15 years before the Second Amendment was written, um. actually, I've got that wrong, 11 years and 13 years. There's no math on this podcast. The Commonwealth uh, of Pennsylvania passed a constitution protecting uh, the right to keep and bear arms, um, not just in protection of the state, but in protection of themselves, the people. It was put into the individual rights part of that constitution. The same document, in fact, the same provision... Bars a standing army. So the idea that we are somehow misinterpreting the Second Amendment from afar is odd, unless you believe that the man who assembled in Philadelphia in 1776 to write that constitution for Pennsylvania pre-misunderstood a document that hadn't been written yet. So I don't know where he gets this idea that bear arms and militia are inextricably linked. When the sentence is bare arms in defense of themselves and the state. And then it goes on to say there'll be no uh, standing army. Vermont picks up that constitutional provision one year later, literatum, in for what it's worth, the same document as it abolishes slavery. So this argument you get along the side, like, well, we can't quite lie about the second, we'll discredit it. It was really there to Put down slave uprisings is also rather silly. I mean, you'd think that Vermont would have known if they were abolishing slavery in the same document that they were adding an individual right to bear arms, that one was superfluous. But it gets even better because in 1818, Connecticut adopts its first constitution as a state and it puts in an individual right, explicitly individual right, that doesn't mention militias at all. Mm -hmm. Does Chris Murphy know this? I think he probably hasn't read (laughs) the constitution of the state in which he lives uh, and which he represents in the Senate. I don't mind people who disagree on gun control. I don't. My whole family in England thinks I'm insane. That's fine. I also don't mind for what it's worth people who say that we should repeal the Second Amendment. I think they're profoundly wrong.
0: But that's an honest argument. honest. I've always thought that was an honest argument. But
1: this idea that the modern interpretation of the Second Amendment was created by the NRA in the 1970s, which is the first thing you'll see if you Google it, is insane. I mean, for a start, Madison proposes putting the Second Amendment into the same part of the Constitution in which individual rights are already being protected. It's in, he wants to put, he he didn't want to add them as amendments at the bottom. He wanted to incorporate them throughout the text. And he says, you should put the Second Amendment into Article 1, Section 9, which is the area of the document that protects habeas corpus and bills of attainder mm. or prohibits bills of attainder. Had he wanted to change the militia structure of the United States, he'd have put it into Article 1, Section 8, Clause 16, which deals with the militia. And by the way, which was already there, there'd have been no need right. for a Second Amendment. When he introduces the what became the Bill of Rights, he says to the assembled Congress, I'm not putting in anything that is controversial here. These are these are the rights we all agree upon. And although I, James Madison, don't think they're necessary because the Constitution is a charter of enumerated powers, I get that we only have the Constitution now because the people on the other side disagree. There was nobody arguing for gun control at yeah. that point. That was not within the consciousness of the colonists. There was nobody among the many jurists, commentators, political theorists at the time who commented on the Bill of Rights, who said anything other than that it was an individual right. This idea of collective rights also did not occur to the men who wrote the 14th Amendment, which started as the 1866 Civil Rights Act, and explicitly said the point of the 14th Amendment was to protect the first eight individual rights. It didn't occur to Thomas Cooley in the end of the 19th century when he writes his seminal textbook and explains, and oddly enough says, you know, the way this is written might lead people to think (laughs) otherwise. The the idea that Murphy is spreading here is one that was popular in the middle of the 20th century. And then that became unpopular and gradually died out and ended with Heller. If you read Lawrence Tribe's textbooks on American constitutional law, The first two cast the Second Amendment as a collective right to do with the militia. But the third one, published in 2000, he admits he was wrong. Mm -hmm. And he says, actually, this, this is an individual right. By that point, the case Murphy is making was indefensible, which is why Sanford Levinson writes his essay, The Embarrassing Second Amendment in 1989. It's why Akhil Reed Amar at Yale is happy to say, yes, it's an individual right. It's why Adam Winkler... Mm -hmm. wrote a book arguing that it's an individual right, uh, albeit he thinks it can be regulated more, which is a fair argument. It infuriates me (laughs) that, that time and time again, we move off the argument of gun control and whether the Second Amendment is a good idea per se, which is entirely legitimate. And we see people saying, you know, all of the historians and scholars know that this was... It, it it just strikes me as the equivalent of saying, you know, pretty much everyone knows the moon landing was faked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> well, no, they don't. Don't get jack-started. Um, <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, and by the way, Murphy also, as part of his argument, suggested that James Madison never wrote anything around the Second Amendment in his notes from the Constitutional Convention which were copious. Of course, there's a good reason for that. The second amendment was not ratified at the constitutional convention. (laughs) It was ratified later. Right. This, this is illiteracy and and it's infuriating.
0: Do you think anything's going to happen? Do I think there'll be federal gun control? Well, just, I mean, do you think the contours of the debate a year from now or two years from now are going to be decisively different than they are right now? The, just to absolutely
1: clarify, do you mean the debate per se the policy
0: environment well think... i- just,
1: i just the reason I ask is because of course if if for whatever if we go into a recession and Democrats absolutely sweep mm-hmm. the election in twenty twenty and they win the presidency and they they win a majority in the House and they make serious inroads in the Senate, then you would have a different legislating environment mm-hmm. I'm not sure the underlying Debate would be different, and in fact, I think—and I hate this about our politics—but I think tribalism might dictate that there was less enthusiasm for gun control just because of who was proposing it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think I think we're in a in the midst of a contagion that, as you said, is extremely depressing. I don't know what to do about it, but it upsets me greatly as well. I do not think that this September, when the Senate reconvenes we're going to see any gun control measures of the sort that gun control activists covet. Mm -hmm. We may see some federal funding for state-level red flag laws, although it's possible...
0: Are you as enthusiastic about them as our friend David French? I'm not,
1: no. Yeah. In part because they tend to be written badly. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the problems here is if you want to regulate individual rights, you want the people who write the regulations to be really enthusiastic about those individual rights. But of course, in practical political terms, that's not what happens. What right. happens is the people who don't like those rights take up the bill. Right. And so the strongest red flag laws are in California. If the strongest red flag laws were in Idaho, they might look different. Yeah. But I'm skeptical you're going to see That inversion of normal political methods. Um, So I think you might see that. I think it's possible Chuck Schumer will kill that bill because he wants a federal red flag law, from what I can see, which I think would be per se unconstitutional. I don't see where the federal government has that power. And then if there is a background check bill of some sort, it seems likely that it would be along the lines of Toomey Mansion, Mm -hmm. which I don't support, but which is far less severe than the one that passed
0: the house that the democrats would like yeah all right so last question on the policy stuff and then i have a, a potpourri um stuff i know you are more you've done you've written for the nra magazine and all that kind of stuff and you're more sympathetic to the nra's cultural message stuff than i am i actually think
1: that no, I, I'm not. I'm sympathetic to the NRA's Second Amendment message and think it should
0: stay silent elsewhere. Okay, but well, we had a conversation at some point about, I think, the Dana Lash stuff, and you seem to be more, because you hate the media, which is a completely different conversation, so you just seem more sympathetic, but maybe I'm misremembering that.
1: No, uh, I don't think so. I've I've written this piece almost every year now, saying that the risk for the NRA is that its convention ends up turning into CPAC with guns. Yeah, And in- In fact... Great name for a
0: band, by the way.
1: (laughs) And that the aim here should not be to, for example, go after socialism, Uh although I'm no fan of socialism, but to recruit socialists who believe in the private ownership of arms to the NRA side and, uh, and convert them into Second Amendment advocates. And I've been worried in much the same way as I've been worried by the ACLU's conversion into an arm of the Democratic Party. Right. That if the NRA drifts too far away from its core mission, then it will become susceptible to the same tribal what's what's the what's the fancy word for it? Negative polarization mm. that we've seen elsewhere.
0: No, I, I think that's happened. I mean I wrote a comment about this a while ago that that Dana Lash and her husband spent three days attacking me for, for quoting her accurately. Um, it was a very strange thing, but if you're in Planned Parenthood, you should want there to be a lot of pro-choice Republicans. Absolutely. If you're in the NRA, you should want there to be a lot of pro-Second Amendment Democrats. Right. And part of the problem with the big sort, I'm less concerned, I mean, the big sort is a bad thing with people, but there's only so much policing you can do of people. The big sort of institutions where because of the weakness of our parties, they become basically de facto proxies for the party structure is really bad for the country. And the NRA, you can just chart it over the last 20 years, has become more and more. People think that politicians are enthralled to the NRA's money, which is just nonsense. nonsense. Absolutely yeah, I mean, nonsense. If you look at what trial lawyers give compared to the NRA, the NRA is like almost a rounding error. Um it's so the NRA is really good at mobilizing voters, informing voters, doing party functions. And as a result, part of the problem is, is that they've moved more and more into this sort of right-wing industrial complex, you know, world of sort of you – know, people like to accuse us of being part of Conservatism, Inc., and these are the same people who just monetize the hell out of, of populist rage and CPAC audiences. I mean – And think that Seb Gorka is a, you know, intellectual colossus. And uh, uh, the NRA now, I think because of negative polarization, has zero credibility, certainly at the national level, across the party aisle, right? I mean, it's no longer – and I think that's a shame if you believe in the Second Amendment. In the same way, that, as you point out, with the ACLU, the ACLU now – has basically become sort of the legal arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a disaster for free speech advocates in this country. And that sorting of institutions, which incurs also in sort of conservative media world a lot, and NR has been fighting against it, you know, heroically as best it can, is – that is a path for real problems down the road, and I don't see that there's much hope of fixing that. Well, I hope there is,
1: because as I say, I am on board – with the NRA's Second Amendment advocacy, I think it's an important organization because it reflects the views mm-hmm. of so many people, and it's defending a civil liberty. I write for them relatively frequently, uh, frequently, of course, only on guns. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I, because that's why they exist. Yeah, um, they don't want like a big pullout on well, you know, and I, and I think if you look at if if you look at the the paradox. Here, the the NRA is powerful because it taps into an American distrust of government and reflexive preference for the Constitution. As you say, it's not the money. The money is the product of that. That's not to say that if the NRA went under you could immediately reconstitute it in a way that would be effective at protecting that constitutional right. And I think we have the same problem with the ACLU. I think if the ACLU does decline into being just an arm of the Democratic Party, if it's Mm pro-single-payer, if it's pro higher taxes
0: religious freedom, all that stuff. Well,
1: I was going to say, but and then if it, in addition to those things, starts undermining its core agenda, which it has been on religious freedom, on free speech, assembly, then trying to rebuild an institution in American life that does the same thing will be harder than it looks. And I, I've made this, this joke before, but it's not really a joke. That on free speech and due process, the Charles Koch Institute is now much, much better yeah. than the ACLU. And I love the Charles Koch Institute, and this is in no way a criticism of it. But the Charles Koch Institute does something different than the ACLU. Mm-hmm. And it has a different structure. It has a different history. It has a different set of legal tentacles. Mm-hmm. And the Cooktopus.
0: <laughs> also, of um, just the different cultural resonance. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so I am a conservative who is alarmed at the prospect of the ACLU disappearing because I think it will take quite a long time to set up another organization that does what it has done for a long time. And much of which I don't like, mm-hmm. or I think is based on a misreading of American constitutional history. And I would feel the same about the n r a and so i'm I'm hopeful that that it will
0: readjust and focus explicitly on the second amendment yeah I'm not optimistic about that process. let's just leave it there um so on a recent episode, not the most recent episode of the editors, but on a recent episode of the editors in one of so first of all before we just you know you know, I'm no longer at National Review, but I love National Review. National Review is in my blood, and um, some of my best friends are still there. Um, uh, and so, I made this criticism back when I was still working at National Review. Um, you just did that. Some of my best friends at National Review, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, is there any way you can appeal the editors' podcast, which I love? Right, it's a great podcast. Uh, is there any way you can appeal to Rich to? Stop with that weird voice of the notorious MBD. It you drives me crazy. <laughs> you have to ask him, Jonah. <laughs> well, I'm going to have him on eventually when his his you know his book on benign nationalism comes out. Um, and uh, I, I mind less the the ripping off of the major league baseball thing at the end. I, I find it utterly flummoxing, but it's it's it is what it is. But the intros drive me crazy. Anyway, so. Uh, and then one of the best single things about Raihan Salam going to the Manhattan Institute is I no longer have to hear Rich in that weird stage whisper do the, and the effervescent Ryan Raihan Salam, which just makes me feel unsafe. Um, there I got it out. And now Rich is going to get mad at me, but so be it. Um, as if one could tell when Rich is mad at you. And, um, uh, but you mentioned how you had just started watching 30 Rock. Oh yeah, okay. So I have an obsession about 30 Rock. I, I, you ever have a piece that you wanted to write, and then the news peg and the window for it just disappears, and you're like, you just wait for an opportunity to write it. Um, I've been wanting to write a piece about 30 Rock for I don't know what, maybe like ten years ago, something like that. Maybe I should look up the anniversary. I can use that.
1: Maybe twelve.
0: Yeah, I agree with you entirely. I have always had my political differences with Alec Baldwin. I used to make fun of him a lot. Um but he's brilliant in the show. I mean utterly brilliant in the show. And but the genius of that show, which a lot of people truly did not pick up on the time. I remember Frank Rich talking about Alec Baldwin being this great indictment of corporate American CEOs and no one has better captured the banality and evil of corporate CEOs is that Alec Baldwin is in fact the moral center of that show. Particularly the we're talking about the first season, season and a half. It kind of goes off the rails later. And his life is together. He's a good guy and he wants to be Liz Lemon's mentor. And Liz Lemon is a horrible person. I mean, she's, she's funny and all that kind of stuff, but she's a hot mess of a person. She's selfish. She's mean to people. And, the genius of the so many people did not pick up on the sort of weird thing here, which is that Alec Baldwin, who's the corporate CEO from GE, is actually the good guy in it, and and the sophisticated and the smart guy. He's talking about Strindberg and all of these things, and Liz Lemon is this sad, childless person who needs his guidance, and and for some reason that just went over everybody's head. And the piece, I, other piece I want to write is how Dennis, the boyfriend is the first, he's the John the Baptist of Trumpism. There's a scene in the bathroom where asks Dennis, what are your political views? And Dennis says, well, socially conservative, fiscally liberal. And he's the subway hero. Trump, I've been arguing this for a long time, is really a product of bridge and tunnel populism in New York City. And if you don't know how Long Islanders and in, in Queens residents look at, at New York City in the 70s, you can't understand Trump. Dennis is like the New York Post guy that sort of explains Trump's id. He's like the homunculus inside Trump's head. <laughs> anyway, I've been looking for an opportunity, so this is my peg to at least talk about the show. So, how far have you got into it? I think we're at toward the end of season three. Yeah, it's, it really starts to get shaky, right? I, the writing still seems excellent to me, and Alec Baldwin is just so so funny. Has he done his impersonation of um of stay of of Tracy? Um, is it Tracy? What's his name? The Tracy Jordan. Yeah, have Tracy Jordan yet? No. Okay, that is maybe his single greatest performance in the history of the show. It is really <laughs> powerful, powerful stuff.
1: You realize watching it how famous Donald Trump was before he was president? Yeah. Because in the first season, they must mention Trump four or five times. Now, I assume he had his show at the... Apprentice, yeah, on NBC. on NBC. So maybe there was a
0: no, but you're right. I mean, if you go back and w- I rewatched The Sopranos a few years ago, and he's mentioned a few times in there. Everything. And uh, I rewatched NYPD Blue, which took some effort because it was like 13 seasons. And um, but I was on a lot of planes, and he comes up almost every season as just sort of a stand-in for a rich guy, you know. That- and the other
1: person in that show who is referenced is Oprah. Yeah. And they're similar in that sense. They're just so famous that people talk about them all the time for no reason. Yeah, But I suppose I hadn't quite realized how famous Donald Trump was. I just hadn't thought... It. I mean, in England, I knew who he was. Everyone knew who he was. But that must have helped him enormously. There is, It's funny, actually, because in the second season, Liz Lemon makes a William F. Buckley Jr. joke. So uh-huh. he obviously had the same... <laughs> Thing.
0: Yeah, well, and also People there's this knew who that was. There's a there's the episode where Tracy Jordan pretends that he's illiterate. So he oh, doesn't yeah. have to come into work. <laughs> and then the first inkling that Liz has that he's uh, faking it is the elevator doors open up and there's Tracy Jordan in the elevator talking to himself. Reading the New York Post, saying, "Man, George Will just gets more and more conservative." <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he's Tracy Jordan is a genius.
1: Yes, he he's a weird dude, but, but he also doesn't have his life in order. Yeah, he does very well. He's—I mean—one of the jokes, of course, is that he's always making half a billion dollars just for something stupid. Yeah, but I like the ambiguity as to
0: how many kids he actually has and. <laughs> <laughs> whether he ever sees his wife <laughs> and yeah you know, the whole role of his wife changes over the course of the show um, right. and it's, so it's funny The but the thing is, is like um, Parks and Recreation which is not in any obvious way a spin-off but um, but it is similar but it is similar and you can look at how basically the Ron Swanson character right. is basically the Alec Baldwin character or the Jack Donaghy character applied to Middle America and and the first two seasons are really shaky of Parks and Rec, but in the third season, it really becomes clear that uh, Leslie Nope or whatever her name is is she's not the mess that Ron Swanson is. But Ron, she keeps referring to Ron Swanson as her ethical and moral mentor, and all of these kinds of things. And they wanted to make Swanson into a bad guy, but it turned out that it just didn't work. See, I was going to ask you about this because the the, the famous example of this, of course, is
1: Archie Bunker. Yeah. I don't have a great deal of time for Archie Bunker, but I understand what happened there. Do you think that the Ron Swanson character in Parks and Recreation and the Jack Donaghy character in 30 Rock was supposed to be laughed at, but that the audience ends up loving them the most, or do you think that they were written as the heroes? I think it's
0: it's a guess, you know, I I have to I'd have to research, you know. Which I don't know how you'd research this, but I think mean, you're supposed to laugh at Donaghy, but you're also supposed to laugh at Liz Lemon. I mean, Liz Lemon was a miserable person who really has her life out of order and, you know, has lettuce in her hair. And Donaghy has everything. He's a captain of the universe. He's, you know, he's the, the, the John Galt kind of thing. And, um, and you're supposed to laugh at his excesses. You're supposed to laugh that he goes to Ann Coulter's 60th birthday party and all these things, but, there are all these sub-things about how he's trying to be your mentor, about how he helped this other guy get his life in order, and how she, you know, she later decides that she needs to have a baby to have meaning in her life and all of these kinds of things. And I think with Swanson, they were trying harder, in part because of the timing, it was more in line with Tea Party stuff, to make him kind of a scary, bad character. And it turned out that just didn't work because he was just such an awesome character, particularly when he explains, you know, how the government... Taxes you by eating the little girl sandwich and all that.
1: (laughs) Um, One reason I think that I prefer the Liz Lemon character on 30 Rock to Leslie Knope, and this may be my my British comic sensibilities coming into play, is that Tina Fey is clearly mocking herself, or at least the character she wrote is a disaster at whom you are supposed to laugh. Leslie Nope and I loved that show, I really did. Mm-hmm. but Leslie Nope's too perfect. She's a little bit authoritarian when you actually look at yeah, her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, she has, in some ways, the same problem that Barack Obama had, which is that even the jokes that she's ostensibly making about herself really are about someone else. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. No, I agree with that. There was a lot of humble brag yeah. kind of stuff going on there.
1: And and I, I thought that... The constant digs at Indiana, which allowed her to be the hero,
0: grated. Yeah. No, I agree. 30 Rock is a better show. And Liz Lemon, despite the fact that she's like this bitter Upper West Side liberal person, is a more, in some ways, certainly someone I'd be more likely to be friends with and someone I would like personally more. And you can just tell that Tina Fey had like the first 14 episodes just lined up, and it just spilled out, because she was just tapping into her Saturday Night Live experience and the craziness of all of that, and then when they had to come up with sort of new storylines and all that, it kind of, I think, got kind of wobbly. It's not entirely clear what the hell the motivation for Parks and Rec was in the same way, and they did a lot of trial and error in the last couple seasons of Parks and Rec, kind of trippy, where it sets itself in the future, and is like dealing with a Google, essentially, kind of company that moves to Pawnee, Indiana, which is not not likely
1: to your theory about liz lemon's life not being in order and this being a big part of the show the episode where she meets the character played by carrie fisher Mm -hmm. right her hero and then she goes back to her apartment and discovers that she's a lunatic and a loser
0: yeah and sort of a lush cat lady
1: (laughs) right yeah i suppose really does make your point because at the end of that episode, she's not out there drinking wine in the middle of the day and fighting the power. She's hanging out with Jack.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, as you know, you are the winner of the Twitter poll. We had, So, the Neil Ferguson podcast was very popular, and it started a discussion on Twitter and also various corridors of power about who had the most uh, euphonious or mellifluous, depending on which adjective you wanted to use. Um, is the correct term anglophone? Anglophone? Or is it just British, which which, which would cover—I mean, we don't have any Australians on— well, If you
1: on, say Anglophone, then you would have to include, say, Indians who speak English. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's true, oh, which I'm open to. I mean, although— I love the accent. Yeah. I mean, we have had Ramesh on, but that's not quite right. He's Kansas. Yeah. But, uh, all right, so British. So British covers all of that, right? And you won, although it was serendipitous. I then heard Madeline Kearns on the latest episode of the Editor's Podcast. And that Scottish accent from this, I've not, I don't think I've ever met Madeline. And um,
1: you won't now that she's obviously gunning for my position
0: because she'll be fired the, at, at 10 minutes. <laughs> um, wow. But uh, her Scottish accent, uh, but she's not been on the podcast. But uh, anyway, I think we're going to make this a long going thing. And a, a follower on Twitter suggested to Jack and Jack pass it on to me. This idea of having you all read the same passage. Okay. Um, we thought about doing it as a passage of Bigfoot erotica. And then we thought about maybe like having you guys read, you know, the, the user agreement on a, you know, piece of software or the instructions for a Xerox machine. Okay. So what we're going to do is, and we want to give everybody equal chance. Uh, we're going to send you guys a piece of copy Mm -hmm. that you get to read. You have audio equipment at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like the way I envision it. It's, it's. Basically, just all real to real audio equipment and mics and walls and walls of guns, like in the Matrix, in your home, yeah. and a little part for your family. But anyway, we're going to give you a piece of copy to What's read. The attics for. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to give you some copy to read, and we're going to have ask Neil and if he agrees, and 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 Daniel Hanan to do it, and basically every other British person on here, and then maybe. That's it. No, that's it. They're just- I know, but I know. I'm in future... You know what you've done though, with this? Uh. Is from now
1: on, you have a first-time guest who's British. Yeah. They will spend the whole morning in front of the bathroom mirror reading whatever it is that you've chosen previously. That's probably true.
0: <laughs> um, to practice it as if it's Shakespeare. I've memorized it. Um, that's a price I'm willing to pay. Yeah, I know. Sure. sure. Um, so we're going to determine what that copy is, and we're going to distribute it to all of you, but you're willing to play along. In oh, sure. Time. Of course. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, um, Charlie, is there anything else that we need to address that you can think of? Um, Charlie Cook, I miss you terribly. Uh, great to have you on again. I think this is appearance three or four, and I uh, hope you'll come back again. Okay. So uh, I would normally say uh, Charlie Cook has left the studio, but he in fact hasn't. And uh, we were just going to do a very quick wrap-up here. But then we, uh, I got Charlie worked up like John Belushi in the old Saturday Night Live skit where he says, and don't even get the Irish started on their mothers except about gun stuff. So anyway, uh, thank you, everybody, uh, for listening. Please keep the reviews and all that stuff going on iTunes or wherever you get your finer podcasts. But what really matters is word of mouth both for uh, this podcast and for the G-File and all the future exciting products that are coming down the line which will all be both uh, floor waxes and dessert toppings. And um, that's all I've got. And I'll see you next time.
1: By the I'm way, we try. can also talk about how rudely you went to Six Flags America yesterday without inviting me, while I was busy driving up from
0: Hurricane. Yeah, Academy. no, I want to talk to you about all that. Um, I'm um, just trying to figure out how we'll segue into it. So, all right, you're recording. <laughs> Normally, you're so you're so good at the segues. <laughs> I, oh, do I do I, do I have do I have ads? That's a tweet. Okay.
1: Um. All right.